So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our survey tonight. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness toward us. We pray tonight, Lord, that you'll teach us, you'll help us to understand your word, your plan for Israel and for uh, even us today, Lord. Work in our hearts as we seek to study your word and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of the world's architectural treasures are temples or churches or religious shrines. England's Westminster Abbey, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the Egyptian pyramids, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, even the Taj Mahal in India are all examples of religious places where we have gone to great extremes to build monuments. I think one of the overlooked proofs that man is by nature a worshiper is the fact that he has reserved his most ingenious expressions of artistry and creativity and engineering prowess for his places of worship. And yet the world's highest and holiest house of worship no longer stands. In fact, it never stood in any one place for very long anyway. For believe it or not, it was a tent. In the epic movie, The Ten Commandments, producer Cecil B. DeMille shows Moses descending from Mount Sinai holding two stone tablets in his hand. But that's only partially correct. Tonight's chapters teach us that under one arm he carried the Ten Commandments, but under the other arm he carried a set of architectural drawings, a roll of blueprints, plans for a tent and its special furnishings. A couple of weeks ago, my family had an extremely unpleasant experience involving a tent. Nick was having a couple of his 11-year-old buddies over to the house to sleep out in the backyard. And we borrowed a tent that we thought we knew how to set up. Well, first Nick tried, but to no avail. Next, Zach tried, and he got aggravated and frustrated and mad at Nick. Next, Kathy went out and she tried, but she got irritated with both boys, and the whole setup was just going poorly. So I finally decided I would go out I would solve the riddle of the mass of canvas and all of the piles of poles laying all over the ground. But hey, I got mad at all of them. (laughs) And we all ended up fighting and fussing in the backyard. The whole family ended up embroiled in a huge argument over a silly tent. Hey, this tent became the vent for our frustrations and friction. But the tent God told Moses to construct had the opposite effect on the family of Israel. That tent became the vent of tremendous peace and praise. It became the place where the people met to worship God. It had a freeing and a fulfilling and a fusing effect on the Hebrews. For the next 500 years in biblical history, the tabernacle, as it was called, will serve as the focal point for Israel's worship of God and her national life. Here in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. 
Now, compared to the world's cathedrals and temples, this tent was tiny and insignificant. Its dimensions were just 15 feet by 45 feet, a mere 675 square feet. The courtyard surrounding the tent was sectored off by a curtain. And so the entire compound, the tent itself and the courtyard surrounding it, was only 150 feet by 75 feet, about half of a football field. And understand the tabernacle was not covered with expensive garments. It was covered with badger skins. The badger skins are not mink. Don't mistake the two. They aren't pretty, fluffy pelts. They're rough and dark and ugly. The tabernacle was unimpressive in size and appearance. But what made it stand out was its occupant. It was the Almighty's throne room on the earth. At the time, it was the only place on earth where you could go and be assured of beholding the glory of God. Yet let's keep reading in verse 9. He says to Moses, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God gives Moses exact specs. Each pole, each socket was carefully engineered by God. Guys, the tabernacle was an earthly replica of heavenly realities. When we jump over to Hebrew chapter 8 verse 5, there the tabernacle is called the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The tent God commissioned Moses to build was actually a small-scale model of heaven itself. People ask me all the time, I wonder what heaven's like. Well, you can get a glimpse of heaven by studying the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In fact, when we get to Revelation and when we gaze into the real heaven, we find the same furniture that we find here in the tabernacle. The ark is there, the altar of incense, the laver, the lampstand. We see the originals in heaven, but here in the tabernacle are the types, the models. How Moses was shown this heavenly pattern is a matter of great speculation among Jewish rabbis. The Talmud comments, An ark of fire and a table of fire and a candlestick of fire came down from heaven. These Moses saw and reproduced. Some of the rabbis said that the angel Gabriel appeared to Moses on the mountain wearing a carpenter's apron and holding models of the tabernacle furniture in his hand. How, we're not sure, but wow. God shows Moses some heavy revies on Mount Sinai. As if the tabernacle were not important enough, there's a verse in the New Testament that gives it even greater significance. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Amplified Version translates it, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was revealed on earth in the tabernacle. Whereas in the New Testament... 
God's glory is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He has become our tabernacle. This tent in the wilderness is a picture of our loving Lord Jesus and His sacrificial work on our behalf. Every detail of its appearance, its construction, its ministry speaks of Jesus Christ. I love to study the tabernacle because if for no other reason, it's a priority adjustment. We tend to major on what God considers minor and minor on what God considers major. And the tabernacle is a good example. One estimate suggests that 10% of the entire Bible is devoted to the tabernacle. And yet how many times have we studied it or tried to grasp its meaning? If I quizzed you tonight on what you knew about the tabernacle, would you be embarrassed? Most of us probably would be. We have just two chapters on creation. We've got a couple of dozen chapters on the tabernacle, its priests and its sacrifices. We admire the power of creation, but the work that heaven values are God's acts of redemption. At the end of chapter 4, we were told that Moses spent 40 days and nights on top of the mountain in the presence of God. And tonight, and in the remainder of the book of Exodus, we're going to discover what happened during those 40 days. Chapters 25 through 31 are God's instructions to Moses to erect this tent. Chapters 35 to 40 are the steps he takes to carry out those instructions. And in between chapters 32 through 34, there is a parenthetical passage which describes the truth that Moses discovers on top of the mountain and the trouble that brews at the bottom of the mountain. So if you want an outline for tonight's study, here it is. The truth above, the trouble below, and the tent between. In fact, this is the outline for all human history. The truth of God is above. There is sin And trouble here below. And the place where a troubled man can meet a truthful God is at the tabernacle. Jesus Christ. Exodus 35 verses 10 through 19. You might want to turn over there. Provides us an itemized list of tabernacle parts and pieces. Whenever the Israelites moved, they may have pulled out this this passage in order to make sure that they had packed all the right components. Moses says to the Hebrews in chapter 35, verse 10, All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat, and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, all its utensils, and the showbread. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light, the incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver and its base." The hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court. 
the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Tonight, let's discuss the tabernacle and its furniture as if you and I were walking together into the precincts. Now, as we approach the tabernacle, we would see the courtyard surrounded by a white linen fence. The fence was made of brass sockets and linen fabric. The white fence would speak to us of God's righteousness. It's interesting that the tents of Israel, the people themselves, they camped all around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the center of their camp. And their tents were made of goat's hair, dark, coarse, rough. The tabernacle, though, was sparkling white, at least its outside gate, what the people looked at. It was striking. This white fence in the middle of dingy brown tents. And it reminded the people that, hey... They were stained with sin, and they had a need for God's purity. There was only one door into the tabernacle, and likewise, there's only one door into the kingdom of God, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament refers to Jesus as the door. It's interesting, too, that the entrance into the tabernacle was on the east side, where the tribe of Judah camped. We would have to pass through Judah in order to enter the tabernacle, and it's no coincidence that Jesus Christ came from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. When we enter the tabernacle, we would come first to the brazen altar. The altar of burnt offering, as it's called. It was made of bronze so it could withstand the heat. And in Scripture, bronze is always a picture of judgment. It's where God applies the heat. It's where sin is judged. The altar of burnt offering was where the animals were slaughtered and sacrificed. And we'll talk more next week about the sacrifices and how they too speak to us of Jesus Christ. Beyond the bronze altar, we would find the laver of water where the priest would wash up before entering the tent. There are two types of cleansing in the scripture. There is a spiritual cleansing that takes place at the altar. There the penalty of sin is paid. The blood of the sacrifice is applied to our hearts. The inner man is redeemed. But the outer man is cleansed at the laver. And it's here that our minds are washed with the water of God's word. It's here that the believer prepares himself to enter into worship. It's interesting, the laver was the only piece of the tabernacle, the furniture, that had where at least we were given no dimensions in terms of how large it was to be. In the tabernacle, apparently it was a small bowl. But in the temple, it's called the brazen sea. And it was a huge reservoir that sat on the back of 12 oxen. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, the real labor in heaven is even larger. There it's called the glassy sea. The tent itself consists of an inner court and an outer court. The outer court was called the holy place. And it was a rectangle. It was 15 feet wide by 30 feet long by 15 feet high. And its floor was made of dirt, which reminded the people of Israel that this world is not our home. You see, in the tabernacle, all of the beauty was above. There was no reason to look down. 
The same is true with us. We need to be looking above where Christ sits, not looking down at our surroundings and our circumstances. The ceiling consisted of four layers. There was a covering of linen, on top of which was a covering of goat's hair. Then there were ram skins, and on top of that, badger skins. The walls inside the tent itself were made of acacia wood, just wooden panels. And each of the panels was overlaid with gold. When you approached the tabernacle from the courtyard, it looked ugly. It was unimpressive. All you saw was these badger pelts, you know, on top of it. But from the inside, it was beautiful. For on the inside, you could see the overlaid golden walls and you could see the beautiful linen ceiling. Remember, the tabernacle speaks of Jesus, which reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. For there the prophet said of Jesus, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Apparently, there was nothing attractive about Jesus' outward appearance. He looked like an ordinary guy. But on the inside, There was this linen white purity. There was this golden character, this divine nature. And so you had to look on the inside to really see his beauty. You know, the same is true of you, his follower. On the outside, you're just an ordinary person. But inside, you are a new creation in Christ. You are a redeemed soul fit for the presence of God. That's why you can't size me up by taking my measurements. There's more to me than you can see. Folks look at the outside and say, hey, he's nothing special. But they don't see who I am in Christ. You and I are God's work of art. On the inside, he's making us into something truly beautiful. Three pieces of furniture occupied this first section called the holy place. As we walk in, the golden menorah sits on the left. The menorah was a seven-branch candlestick. We're told in Exodus 25, 39, it was made from a talent of gold or about a hundred pounds of gold. Imagine its cost at today's prices. It would be astronomical. Since there are no windows in the tabernacle, the menorah provides its only light. And of course, Jesus is our lampstand. Apart from him, our lives would be full of darkness. He is the light of the world that reveals to us God's truth and God's love. To the right of the tent sits the table of showbread. And on the table sat twelve loaves, which were only eaten by the priests. Jesus, too, is our showbread. He is our supply. He is our sustenance and strength. Throughout the Bible, breaking bread is an idiom that speaks of fellowship. And Jesus is the means by which we can have fellowship with God. And in the holy place, just before the veil, sits the altar of incense. And from the table, the smoke of the incense would pass up through the veil into the very presence of God. It too, of course, speaks of Jesus. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of God and prays for us. Once a little girl came home from Sunday school and said to her mom, 
Mom, God can do miracles with his left hand. And God can do wonders with his left hand. And God can part the sea with his left hand. And God can create great works with his left hand. And finally, the mother said, wait a minute, honey, why? God can do things with both hands. And she says, oh, no, he can't. Jesus is sitting on his right hand. She had gotten things a little confused. Jesus is not sitting on his right hand. He's sitting at his right hand. And he's there interceding for us. He knows our plight. He knows our troubles. He knows the difficulties we're going through. And he pleads on our behalf for heaven's help. Every aspect of the holy place speaks of Jesus. He is the light. He guides us. He is the bread. He feeds us. He is the incense. He prays and pleads for us. The inner court, the holy of holies, was 15 feet cubed, 15 feet wide by 15 feet long by 15 feet high. And this is where the presence of God resided in the tabernacle. There's only one item of furniture in the inner court, but it's the most precious piece in all the tabernacle. It's a box. Three foot nine inches long by two foot three inches wide by two foot three inches deep. It's made of wood overlaid with gold and it has a solid gold lid on the top. This box, of of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. In 1981, Paramount Pictures released the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it focused on this box. Indiana Jones wrestled it away from the Nazis and turned it over to the American authorities. The story of Indiana Jones, incidentally, was inspired by a real person, a fellow by the name of Vindel Jones, a former minister who for years has searched for the Ark of the Covenant. Another man by the name of Tom Costner, who owns a construction firm in Kansas, has followed different legends around the world in search of the Ark of the Covenant. There's an interesting story about how Jeremiah hid the Ark on Mount Nebo over in Jordan. And Costner went to Jordan in search of the Ark in October of 1981, and he found a a box, an ancient box. It turned out not to be the Ark. It didn't have the right dimensions, but his find created quite a stir. Believe it or not, there are a few real-life Raiders of the Lost Ark. In fact, I want to encourage you tonight to become a raider of the true Ark. And let me tell you how. Remember, the Ark housed the tablets of the law. And the law, of course, represented God's righteousness. Over the Ark rested the tangible, visible manifestation of God's glory. And so catch the picture, the holiness of God hovering over the demands of the law. And yet who can stand in that place? Who has been obedient to the law to the point where it has satisfied God's holy requirements? None of us. It reminds me of a prayer. Dear Lord, So far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm thankful for that. 
But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. We're all guilty of violating God's righteous rules. We all deserve His judgment. And yet, take heart. For between the holiness of God and the righteous requirements of the law was a lid, a golden slab, and it was blood-stained. Because it was there at the mercy seat that the priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. The Hebrew word for mercy seat is translated in the New Testament as the word propitiation or place of mercy. You see, there is a place of mercy. There is a place between God's judgment and His law. There's a place of forgiveness and fellowship. The mercy seat. And that's why it's so wonderful. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it's so wonderful when we read, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation, or literally, our mercy seat. Jesus is our place of mercy. He is the blood-stained lid that satisfies the holiness of God and the righteous requirements of the law. His sinless life, His sacrificial death makes amends for our sin and satisfies God's holiness and His righteousness. You see, the only way to escape God's wrath is to throw yourself on the mercy seat. That's why the true raiders of the ark believe in the power of Jesus Christ and they hold tightly to Him. I hope you're one of them. Understand, access to the tabernacle was sectored off by veils or screens. The first screen blocked the entrance into the tabernacle courtyard. Only the priestly tribe of Levi could enter the compound. The second veil blocked the entrance into the holy place. Only the sons of Aaron, the priests themselves, could enter before the Lord in the holy place. And a third veil... Limited access to the inner sanctum or the holy of holies. And through that veil, only one person could go and then only once a year. And that was the high priest. At each step, the access became more and more limited. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, we're told that when Jesus died, that last veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place We're told the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, Jesus abolished this limited access. He opened the door so that all of us can now go straight into the holiest. Where we can go right into the presence of God in Christ. We can live in God's presence 24-7, 365 days a year. Exodus chapter 28 verse 4 mentions the garments that were worn by the priests. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. And according to verse 33 of chapter 28, little bales were 
sewn onto the fringes of the priestly robe. Verse 35 says that this is precautionary. For if a priest went into God's presence with guilt on his hands, the Lord might strike him dead. Remember, he is a holy God and the law has righteous requirements. The people outside then would know that he was in trouble when they no longer heard his jingle bells. A priest that didn't meet up to the to God's requirements would end up being known as a dead ringer. <laughs> Jewish tradition tells us that they even tied a rope to his ankle so that when he went in and if he was proved to be unworthy to be there, they could pull him out without having to go in and risk their own lives to get him. And this all demonstrated how little confidence the Hebrews had when it came to entering into the presence of God. Compare that, guys, to our confidence today. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Christ, our sin is totally abolished, completely eradicated. And there is no reason any longer for us to be timid or reluctant in entering into God's presence and in reaching out for God's help. You have been made worthy through the work of Jesus Christ. And so now come boldly and grab for all that God's grace has obtained. Another aspect of the priest's garments was the breastplate. It contained 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Literally, the priest was expected to keep God's people close to his heart. I believe this should also be true of a pastor. I've heard pastors say, I'm searching for the perfect ministry. One where I don't have to deal with people. Hey, a pastor's job is to love people. To hold them dear to his heart. According to verse 36, the priest also wore a turban, which was adorned with a golden plate, and on the plate were engraved the words, Holiness to the Lord. He wore the plate on his forehead, and thus before a thought or before an image entered his mind, it first had to pass muster with the holiness of God. Let me ask you tonight, do you think only pure thoughts? Before you allow a thought or image to come into your mind, do you run it past the holiness of God? Hey, the spiritual battle is won or lost in the arena of the mind. Once Moses got the priest washed and decked out in their garments, they were dedicated to God. And the process is described in chapter 29 after offering several sacrifices. Moses was to take the blood and apply it to the priest in a special way. Note with me in verse 20 of chapter 29. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. That sounds kind of strange. And yet this is the extent to which we all should be dedicated to God from head 
to toe. All of us. Guys, dedicate your ears to God. To hear His Word. Dedicate your hands to God. To do His will. Dedicate your feet to God. To walk in His ways. Let me mention two more points about this construction of the tabernacle. Remember, throughout Scripture, we're taught the principle where God guides, He provides. When put another way, God doesn't ask us to do what He doesn't equip us to do. And there's no better illustration of this point than the provision that God supplies in the construction of the tabernacle. First, He supplies workers. He says to Moses in chapter 31, verses 2 through 5, See, I have called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Now, these are not the spiritual gifts that we usually think of when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And yet, God provided. Imagine the labor requirements for the construction of the tabernacle. Moses needed people able to work with metals and embroidery and fabric and leather and wood. You know, we get bent out of shape when we run short of a few nursery workers. But where God guides, He provides. He supplies the workers that are needed. It's interesting, God supernaturally supplied these gifts. Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to cut jewels and to carve wood. We've probably never prayed for the spiritual gift of diamond cutting or woodworking. And yet they were given to Bezalel. God supplied the workmen, but also He supplied the wealth. Remember when the Hebrews left Egypt, the Egyptians were so glad to see them go, they gave to them gold and silver. It was sort of a voluntary plunder. And now God calls upon His people to turn over all of these gifts in order to build this tabernacle. And they react wonderfully to the call. Exodus 36 verses 4 through 7 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. We're told, Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the servants of the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Have you ever heard a pastor say to the congregation, you can stop giving now, we've got too much money, you know, for the needs. You ever heard that before? That's what Moses said to his congregation. Did you hear about the conversation that the $1 bill had with the $100 bill? He asked him, he said, hey, where you been lately? The $100 bill replied, well, been hanging out at a few casinos, 
went on a cruise, got back to the U.S. I've been to a few ball games now, to the mall, that kind of stuff. What about you? The one dollar bill kind of shook its Washington head with disgust and said, you know, the same old, same old church, church, church. <laughs> well, Moses had just the opposite problem with his congregation. They gave too much. I look forward to the day. It hadn't happened yet. But I look forward to the day when Pastor James comes into my office and says, Sandy, we got too much money. Just tell the people to stop giving. I would love to do that. It would thrill God to know that his people love him so much, that they're so grateful for all that he has done for them, that they are willing to give more than enough to support his work. During the 40 days and nights that Moses spent on the mountain, God told him to build this tent. But there's also trouble in truth in tonight's chapters. Look at what happens in chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us gods that we shall, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now note their problem. They want something they can see. They are walking by sight, not by faith. And guys, this will always get you into trouble. The impala. Not the car, but the Antelope, the animal, is an interesting study. The impala is an, a leaper. It can jump 10 foot high and can cover a distance of 30 feet in a single stride. And yet impalas are displayed in zoos behind 3 foot high stone walls. How can a 3 foot high stone wall keep an impala hemmed in when it can jump 30 feet in a stride. Well, the reason the animal won't go over the wall is because it won't jump where it can't see where its feet will land. If it can't see where its feet will fall, it won't jump. In other words, impalas suffer from lack of faith. You and I do too. All too often, we're not willing to jump. We're not willing to step out. Because God hasn't given us all the answers. He hasn't told us what will happen. He's just told us to jump. We need to have faith. We need to trust God. Even when we can't track Him or trace Him, we need to trust Him. We're told in verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, or to Jehovah God. 
Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Tragically, the first employment of these Hebrews craftsmanship is not their work on the temple, but their construction of an idol. Isn't that sad? They used gifts God had given them in order to fashion an idol. Don't you do the same. It seems the people violated the first command and decided to worship a God other than Jehovah. I believe, though, Aaron violated the second command. He made a graven image. In verse 5, after he makes the golden calf, he proclaims a feast to the Lord, or in the Hebrew, Jehovah God, the true God. It's interesting, we know that the angels, or the living creatures, in Revelation chapter 4, have a face like a calf. And it's just my theory, but rather than suggest a different God brought them out of Egypt, I believe that Aaron made a graven image to the one true God. He made this golden calf in an attempt to represent God, the true God. And yet, how quickly it was turned into an idol. And that's why God forbids the use of graven images in his worship. Notice in verse 6, the people made burnt offerings and peace offerings, but the one sacrifice they didn't offer was the sin offering. These were unrepentant people. In just five months following their miraculous deliverance from Egypt, these faithless people had forsaken God to follow an impotent idol. And God is angry. He says to Moses in verse 10, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, this is an incredible offer that God gives to Moses. He's frustrated with the Hebrews, and he suggests that he could wipe them out and start over again with Moses. If Moses had had any inkling of selfish ambition, he would have taken God up on the offer, I'm sure. But God is testing Moses' love for the people. You know, the best leaders are lovers. People will follow you if they know that you love them. And here's, here Moses' love for God's people is severely tested. In verses 11 through 13, Moses reminds God of his reputation among the heathen and the reliability of his promises to the Hebrews. His prayer here is based on God's grace and God's faithfulness. And in verse 14, we're told, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. In other words, God changed his mind. He relented. Can God do that? If God relents, if he changes, if he changes his mind... What does that do with the doctrine of God's sovereignty? I'll let you and the theologians figure that one out. All I know is that in verse 14, we're told that God changed his course of action in response to Moses' prayer. And that is powerful. And that should encourage us to pray. 
an effective, fervent prayer does avail much. A prayer born out of love, based on God's grace and faithfulness, does accomplish much. It's true. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Our sovereign, supreme, all-knowing God somehow makes His plans vulnerable to our petitions. He invites us to participate in His work through prayer. God baits us, literally, to get involved in what He's doing by allowing our puny prayers to sway His mighty movements. What a privilege to pray. I hope you're taking advantage of it. In verse 15, Moses descends from the mountain to check out on his rebellious people. And in verse 19, we're told, So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf in the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The tablets that God himself had written with his own finger Moses threw down in anger and broke. This is the only time in human history when all ten commandments were broken in a single act. (laughs) It's interesting what happens next. Moses burns the calf, he grinds it to powder, and then he mixes the powder with water, and he makes the Hebrews drink it. Sort of like Alka-Seltzer in reverse. He wants their rebellious and sinful behavior to make them sick at their stomach. When Moses confronts Aaron in verse 21, his brother's response is typical. He passes the buck. Blames it on the people. He never takes responsibility for his own actions in the whole event. Look at verse 24. He's really funny in his excuse. Sounds a lot like our excuses. He says, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire and this calf came out. (laughs) I don't know how it happened, but it just popped out. (laughs) Passing the buck not taking responsibility for his actions. I've heard it put, if I am not the problem, there can be no solution. God will forgive, He will change, He will help, as long as you own responsibility for your own sin. Confess it, admit it, and that will open the door for God to deliver you from it. Moses draws a literal line in the sand and 3,000 people die as a judgment on their rebellion. It's ironic. The grace of God was poured out at Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. When the law of God was given, 3,000 people died. What happens next is mind-boggling. Moses returns to the mountaintop to intercede again on behalf of the people. And Moses says to God in verses 31 and 32, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses, do you realize what you're saying? 
Moses is willing to go to hell in order for these Hebrews to go to heaven. Guys, I got to be honest. I love you a lot. <laughs> but I don't love you that much. I'm not going to risk the big burn for you. I would suffer a lot of ways in order to show God's love for you, but go to hell. Sorry. One commentator wrote, It is not easy to estimate the measure of love in a Moses. For the narrow boundary of our reasoning powers does not comprehend it, as the little child is unable to comprehend the courage of heroes. Wow, the love that Moses had for the people he had been called to lead and to direct. Even though I can't say I have mimicked Moses' love, I can say I am moved by Moses' love. I care. Listen to the little poem. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. Did you realize that when I read that poem, 39 people died in the world? In that time it took to read that poem, 39 people died. Every hour across the globe, 5,417 people go to meet their creator, and spend eternity in heaven or hell. Add to that the alarming statistic that 95% of Christians never lead a single person to Christ in their lifetime, and you begin to understand the seriousness of the situation. God isn't asking you to go to hell for someone else. He's just asking you to get down on your knees and pray for a friend. He's just asking you to go across the hall at work and share the gospel with that coworker, with that friend. He's just asking you to go out of your way and give an offering to a missionary. He's just asking you to go out back in the backyard and talk to your neighbor over the fence and try to lead them to Christ. Do we love the lost? Have we forgotten that we were once lost ourselves? In verses 33 and 34, We learn that God spares Moses and the Hebrews. God tells Moses to lead Israel to the land of promise. But as they march, God refuses to abide in the midst of the people. They're too stubborn. They're too evil. And so until this tabernacle is built, God meets with Moses in a tent outside the camp. We're told that whenever Moses went out into the tent... A column of cloud hovered overhead. The people would stand at the door of their tents. They would look out at God's glory and they would marvel. They would stand in awe and they would worship. And we're told in chapter 33, verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What amazing intimacy Moses shared with God. But Moses was concerned that God's presence had been removed from the camp. And so he asked God how he can be sure that his grace and favor will go with them. And in verse 14, God promises, My presence will go with you, 
and I will give you rest. And then Moses makes a beautiful statement in verse 15. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses would rather be in the desert with God than in a land of blessing without him. He longs that much for God's presence. Reminds me of what David said in the psalm. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to have front row seats in the tents of the wicked. Remember when God told Moses to go to Egypt, Moses balked. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God answered him, I will certainly be with you. At the time, that wasn't enough for Moses, God's presence. He came back with more excuses, but now he's learned that when God is with you, you have all that you need. And Moses, becoming assured of God's presence, knows now that nothing is impossible. Now you know why it meant so much to the disciples when Jesus said to them, And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. When God is with you, nothing is impossible. In chapter 33, verse 18, Moses reveals the desire of a heart that's hungry for God. He asks the Lord, Please, show me your glory. Moses wants all that God's grace entitles. Remember now, Moses had known God's presence. He had talked to God as a man would talk to his friend face to face. But Moses is no longer content with the warmth of God's presence. Now he wants to see the full blaze of God's glory. He wants to see God unveiled and in full regalia. How content have we become in our relationship with God? Have we prayed lately, Lord, show me your glory? Listen to what one author writes. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a man of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Are you content with $3 worth of God? Or do you want all that grace entitles you to possess? In response to Moses' request to see his glory, God gives Moses his name. In Bible times, remember, a name revealed a nature, and thus God reveals his name here in verse 19. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, God's glory. His brilliance and His beauty is synonymous with His grace. The greatness of God is seen in His compassion. There's a praise song that we sing that has this line, His might is hid in His mercy. That's the glory of God. Moses wants to see God's glory. But God tells Moses that no one can see his face and live. The full brunt of unshielded, undiluted grace is too much for a mortal man to handle. 
And thus God tells Moses in verse 21 and tw- through 23, he says, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What a phenomenal experience. Didn't get to see his face, but he got to see his backside. Have you prayed lately, Lord, show me your glory? In chapter 34, Moses writes on two more tablets, the Ten Commandments. And then God renews his covenant. He makes an incredible promise in verse 10. Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. In chapter 34, verse 30, we're told what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain. When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. After being in the glory of God, Moses came down and he had the divine shine, the mo glow. His face just shined with the glory of God. And I believe this is what will happen to you when you spend time in the presence of God. When you spend time in God's presence, you become like Him. The more you get to know Him, the more you become like Him. You see, the human spirit is like a bounty paper towel. We are the quicker picker-upper. We're absorbent. Whatever we soak in, that's what we become saturated with. And when you soak in God's glory, you begin to radiate God's glory. It's been said there is still in the countenances of God's most advanced servants a brightness, a gladness, a beaming radiance, which comes only from long communion with the Lord. God wants you to be like a lampshade. He wants to reveal His glory in your heart and then let that glory shine out through your life. In Acts 6 verse 15, it was said of Stephen that he had a face as the face of an angel. Do you spend so much time in God's presence that you radiate the joy and the love and the peace of God? C.H. Spurgeon once said, What a means of blessing one look at the Lord may be. There is life, light, love, liberty, everything in fact, in a look at the crucified one. It's interesting, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai three times in this story. The first time he comes to deliver the Hebrews out of bondage. The second time he comes with the tablets of judgment. And the third time, he descends radiating the glory of God. And in this, he is a type of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus will descend to earth three times. The first time, he comes to deliver us out of sin and bondage. He has already come. The second time, he will come with judgment to judge the wicked for breaking the commandments. But the third time he comes, 
He will come in His kingdom, radiating His glory to reign and rule over the earth. Guys, there is truth above in the presence of God, but there's trouble below. Men continue to walk by sight, not faith. They need God. They need to meet with God, and thus we need a tent between. And we have one, Jesus Christ. He is our place of mercy. He is the one place in the world tonight where a man can come and discover the forgiveness and freedom of God in his life. It's interesting in chapter 40, Moses sets up the tabernacle. He's ready for the grand opening, the big event. There's only one thing missing, and that's the glory of God. But God does not disappoint. Verse 34 tells us, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I believe that this is what God wants to do in your life and in my life. He wants to pour out His glory and His goodness and His love into our lives to such an extent to where we can no longer handle it. Where we're just blown away with His goodness and His grace. And the world looks on and says, wow, I want some of that. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this book of Exodus and the wonderful treasures that we found in its pages. Lord, continue to work in our hearts as we study through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, we're going to study Leviticus Chapters 1 through 22. So you got a little reading to do between now and next Sunday.